This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen C is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Avery, so nice to see you. This is a bittersweet episode because you are not going to be here for the actual interview that we're going to be showing after this because you're in the wonderful land of Israel, the motherland for me, and you're going to a wedding and you look amazing. For anyone who can't see, she's in a full wedding attire right now. (laughs) (laughs) Tiara and all. It's pretty special. (laughs) Avery, what are you doing in that part of the world? Sam, always amazing to see you. And it is bittersweet because I'm sad I'm going to miss it, but I'm almost happy I'm going to be able to hear it as a listener only. So I can't wait to tune in. I'm actually in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I was just telling my better half that which one of us were Jewish so that we could move. Um, Tel Aviv is amazing, especially in the summer. And we're here for a wedding, but always working a little bit of the business side as well. So yeah, there's such a big tech scene happening there. How could you not be doing business? Huge tech scene. Yeah. Marketing tech, and they have a you know thriving cybersecurity sort of scene. And they also are doing a lot of stuff in the generative AI realm. So really interesting to meet with a couple of the companies and and VCs that are out here. And I'm very excited for my first ever Israeli wedding, which is actually happening. Um, We leave in an hour, so I'm pumped for it. Hence why I'm overdressed. Okay. Overdressed and off the chain. So for people who are listening later, we are interviewing Seth Goldstein. Seth is the creator of Bright Moments. Seth's also a serial entrepreneur. He has been, I think... 12 companies now, I think three or four exits of those. He was the entrepreneur in residence at Union Square Ventures with Fred Wilson. He and I worked together both in our mid-20s, which is where we met, which is a long time ago, by the way. Seth was one of the first people who really inspired me to kind of think differently about innovative tech and has always been on the forefront. When I had my agency, we worked together a bunch. We helped him bring his some of his companies to South by and other experiences. So Yeah, it's always been great to have a chat with Seth. He brings a lot to the table and looking forward to that. But first, Avery, before you go dance the night away, let us focus on some of the stories that have happened recently, wanted to get your takes on. The first one is about Lacoste. And Lacoste was really interesting to me. They released a kind of Web3 tokenized gamification platform. This one reminds me a lot of actually Odyssey with Starbucks, where they're kind of measuring micro interactions and creating point systems around the cost. I don't know, like it brought me a little bit of warmth when I read this, only because I thought here's someone who at least is thinking about it in an interesting manner. They're not over-indexing on NFTs and blockchain. They're kind of utilizing blockchain for something kind of good that starts with having a kind of genesis NFT, but then everything else really is just behavioral. And, you know, we sometimes come down on brands. Do you think this is a good usage of brand and Web3. Yeah. So for those who are not familiar with Lacoste Genesis collection underwater, spelled without vowels as per the Web3 native tradition, I actually thought that that was one of the sort of hottest brand NFTs that launched during that heyday. Um, It sold out quickly. There's a lot of hype around it. They did a great job marketing to an engaged Web3 native community. They had very high sort of performing social posts on their Web2 ecosystem. And it was definitely one that we were paying attention to at Vayner. 
And I think similar to where a lot of brands are right now, um, Lacoste is likely looking to take that, you know, inaugural collection where they were sort of playing in that relevant moment at the time and find out a way to create broader appeal for that community and sort of bring it closer together with their mainstream brand efforts. So I think it is interesting, but I do think that it is complicated. And, you know, right now we're chatting mere hours after Threads just launched, Instagram sort of text-based Twitter competitor. And, you know, it just reminded me that nothing can beat frictionless convenience for consumers. And at the end of the day, consumers want something that's easy and they want a network effect. And I think that Lacoste's current sort of ecosystem as I see it is probably going to be interesting for their super fans who care a lot about Lacoste. But for, you know, maybe a person who buys a couple of polo shirts per year, it's going to be a lot of work and time investment to spend that amount of time with a fashion brand unless you are, you know, super into it. You know, I think it's kind of uh, in line with the trend that we're seeing and, and what we're advising a lot of our partners on is how do you take sort of Web3 and treat it as more of a channel and an extension of your brand versus like a standalone campaign, which I think made sense when they were sort of in that zero to one phase. But now it's time to create broader appeal if these programs are going to be sustainable and scalable and ultimately like worth the investment that brands are putting in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just back on the threads train, it sounds like what you're saying is what made that so easy was the fact that your followers can come to Threads and you already have an existing network, right? Already in Threads, it's very easy. It's just giving a written companion to a visual medium on Insta. Exactly. You know, your handle ports over, it can share directly from Threads to Instagram, which created a nice little effect. You know, my blue check mark came with me, which was convenient. All of the people that I follow on Instagram, of course, like I'm now following on Threads if they're set up and whatever their algorithm is doing is clearly pulling in my other interests because all these people that I didn't follow on Instagram, but I do follow on Twitter, somehow it's suggesting them. So I don't want to, you know, create hyperbole. There's so much of that going on right now around Threads, but I think it's interesting. And I think it ultimately goes to show that convenience and frictionless onboarding like really matters to consumers at scale. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think what we're seeing from Lacoste is anywhere near that frictionless. <laughs> no, and neither is Odyssey at the moment. No. So I think... Yeah, it's like connect to this, jump through 19 hoops, like right. sign into this, like, you know, save your password here. Here's four other things to do. And then you get a, you know, journey stamp. <laughs> right. And you're like, okay, cool. If you're super into this, amazing. But if you're just like your average person who just wants coffee, mm. you know, that's a lot of time investment. Right. As opposed to like Nike, which, you know, let's be real, there was friction in the drop yep. uh, when they first came out. But once that was done the Fortnite integration was literally clicking a button. Exactly. Like it wasn't very hard to do, you know? And so I think that they got ease of use in a way that at least Lacoste and Starbucks so far haven't. And I think the other thing about the Nike linkage that, you know, gets to that point on frictionless is like, they're fishing where the fish are. Those people are already playing Fortnite. They already like it. So like it's an existing engaged community versus trying to build an owned community. And I'm a huge believer that brands building owned communities is a massive opportunity, but it's also a massive investment, both in time and resources and money. And it's hard to do. It still feels like most brands come into new technologies for the press release, for the marketing hit, and not because they are saying, I'm going to dedicate an entirely new team to a new channel. I would say it depends. You know, there's always a team who's dedicated to like understanding what's new and what's next. And I think about it like a scale, right? There's that balance of established channels, things that we know work, like we need to sell toilet paper. And this is like when we run TV ads, it sells, right? Then there's a mix of like emerging channels. And you have to balance those two things because ultimately what begins as emerging becomes established and that scale rebalances like time and time again as time goes on. 
So I think it's a balance of emerging established. Brands want to show that they're forward thinking for the sort of immediate relevance benefit, earned media benefit, you know, even showing their internal employees that they're forward thinking. So I don't think it's only the press release, but I think it's it's almost like brand FOMO. They want to make sure they don't miss the boat on something. So participating in a way allows them, you know, to be one foot in and one foot out. I think sometimes the Web3 native community sometimes reads too far into things. They're like, great, this is a massive priority from now because they did this thing. And I would say, you know, at least from my perspective, the way these things start is often like an experiment. And if it proves to be successful, like we've seen many Fortune 500 companies dedicate entire teams to metaverse and NFTs and sort of Web3-centric activities. And on the other hand, we've seen sort of established innovation groups take on those remits as well as part of like what they're looking at in a broader sense of innovation. So I think a little bit of both. But I do think that most consumers don't recognize that if you're a brand, you have to dabble in all of these because you don't want to miss out when something hits, right? So I think about when folks were dabbling in Instagram and in Facebook and Twitter, they were also dabbling in Foursquare and Peach. And Vine. We had a Vine agency at Vayner. And Vine. Right, exactly. I think I worked actually once here with your Vine agency for a Pepsi Super Bowl. Yes, it sounds right. Um, (laughs) But, um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with the innovation groups making those bets because you're not betting that everything's going to succeed. You're going to bet that three out of 10 succeed. And therefore you're kind of just, you're playing the numbers. You're playing the numbers. And I think a lot of those things back to the sort of point on Vine. And I know we talked about this recently, VoiceCon. It's not that every single bet needs to be right, but some of them need to be right. But by being early, you keep yourself in the conversation where you can provide these relevant opportunities and create. I think that's a big part of it as well. Like being a little bit ahead, balancing like the now with like the next, I think that's the sweet spot that brands are always like, to play in. And I think, you know, we joke all the time, like Vine, you know, pioneered the six second ad. YouTube, one of their core formats is called bumpers, six second ad, TikTok, short form video. So I think like, you know, a lot of the people who are early believers in Vine, they were right macro, but they were wrong in the micro because Vine wasn't what hit, it was TikTok, right? But that idea of the short form video was right. It was just a little bit too early. And I've been sort of thinking a lot about that in this sort of current format of NFTs, because I do believe that's right, but maybe the current format that we're seeing them, you know, it'll have to evolve in order for that like momentum moment to hit. And let's not forget that Twitter acquired Vine and turned it into Periscope instead of letting Vine be Vine. Exactly. Vine had a ton of heat and could have been TikTok, except that Jack Dorsey made a decision. And whether that's right or wrong is not the conversation. But the fact was, you know, in the same way that like Apple acquired Dark Skies, which was an amazing weather app, and then sunset it for its own weather app that's not as good. Twitter made the same choice. Shout out Dark Skies. Yeah. (laughs) Love Dark Skies. All right. In another fashion... What feels like more of a fashion faux pas is Tommy Parallel. This also came out last week, which is Tommy Hilfiger is releasing a collection that has a digital twin to it. So the idea is you buy the puffer jacket, you also get the puffer jacket digitally. They haven't done too much with it. The website that was up now is password protected, um, which I thought also was really interesting. I wonder if they like got some flack. And the final thing, and I think... In one of our group chats, I posted this photo. It literally looked like someone just did a cut and paste of a puffer jacket on top of an avatar and then put it on the website and put it on LinkedIn. Like it looked like there was very little care put into how they were thinking about this. And at least for me, and Tommy Hilfiger has done some interesting stuff in Web3 as well as generally in innovation, but this felt a little bit like either we're trying to be so too cool that like we don't even have time to like make good imagery or as an afterthought, let's jump on the digital twin stuff that's happening in other spaces. And then they release this. Any thoughts on Tommy Parallel? And by the way, TommyParallel.com, if you guys want to check it out, 
don't know, it felt like a miss to me. Yeah, I did see Tommy Parallel. Um, I was actually, when I first saw it, wondering if it was really from the brand or like some UGC content. Um, it was really from the brand. I also noticed that the website was password protected and not exactly sure like what their strategy is with that one. So it'll be interesting to see if that's an initiative that continues. I do feel like Tommy is actually really, you know, similar to like all 90s nostalgia that we're seeing right now. It's actually a brand that's like definitely on the up. I was just reading that they're one of the most visited locations in Zepetto, which is a super fast growing neighbor owned metaverse app. And that to me was like impressive as hell. Like that's amazing. Like the fact that Tommy is investing there and like, it's not just a thing that, you know, 400 people are going to see, but I believe it was one of the top five brands that was active or most followed in Zepetto, which I thought was really interesting and like really cool and also makes sense for their business as like they're looking to expand. Americana is really popular in North Asia as sort of like a fashion trend. So I think that the parallels is probably some part of a broader like metaverse or digital fashion strategy for Tommy, some of which, you know, to our earlier point, maybe three of those are successful out of the 10 that they put out, but they wait to sort of see which one sticks. And I think one of the reasons that Zepetto thing like made sense to me just from a business perspective is like that's likely a new audience, a younger audience that they're looking to break into. Their avatars actually look very good and and they're fishing where the fish are because that's a place that has, you know, tens of millions of users on a daily basis that makes a lot of sense for Tommy. I think what you hit on is correct though, is Tommy is always innovative. This one feels off to me only because it feels like a little bit of an afterthought in how they released it. And then like, again, you don't release a URL and then make it password protected as a brand. Like that doesn't make any sense. But I do remember, for example, when New York Fashion Week was the, and still is probably the most important North American Fashion Week, Tommy made a big choice to try to create LA Fashion Week around his show that was happening. And they created the Tommy Carnival, which got a ton of press. And it was the first to really utilize like the LA influencer scene also. So I do think that Tommy is on the pulse as a brand of like what to do. So I'm interested to see, and, and I definitely want to check out the Zepetto stuff that you were just mentioning, because this just felt like if this had come out last year, it would be a little bit more appropriate. But right now, is this the right time? Is this the right brand? Yeah, I also think that, you know, the digital twin concept for fashion is one that I haven't seen take off yet. Like we've seen a lot of brands do stuff in this space around a digital twin. And right now I feel like the consumer appetite for that type of thing is still low because they don't know where they can bring, you know, these digital twins. I think the idea of digital fashion like is without question massive. And I do believe that'll be the future of fashion. And every fashion brand needs to be thinking about their sort of digital first product strategy. But like where you can actually bring that in a decentralized world is very limited right now. So I think it's a interesting one to see if anyone is able to crack that because I haven't yet seen a breakthrough on it. Yeah. All right. Final story before we let you go to your wedding is, and this is not a sentence I was expecting to say, Yeah. but Harry Styles added 5,000 people into the Web3 ecosystem in one night at one of his concerts. So this is a partnership that looks like Harry Styles and their team did with events and co-create. And basically the idea at the concert, similar to what the Knicks have done and what Boogie with a Hoodie did, like there's been a bunch of this kind of show a QR code, give us your email, it opens a wallet for you. And suddenly now the artist has 5,000 people who are following directly that you can do digital collectibles, you can buy merch and have points associated kind of the way that Matt Sanders was talking to us in the Event Sevenfold episode. It just felt like there was, you know, again, I think the macro here is not actually whether or not it's blockchain or not. I think the macro here is artists want to own direct relationships with fans. And if Harry can get 5,000 per concert to come in and he has that data versus Instagram or Twitter having that data, that's the win. Is that your take as well? 
That is. So I think there were 80,000 people who went to the concert. So one, I think it's impressive that he's able to start like building in that direction and shout out Kokiri, shout out Tara Fung, who I think is, you know, has a lot of really interesting ambitions around cracking this on behalf of artists and builders and brands. You know my thoughts on custodial wallets though, Sam. I'm like, yep, you know, know. 49.51 on this um, because <laughs> yes, does that really count as onboarding is the question that I will always ask myself because, you know, if Harry is constantly engaging with those people, then yes, it makes sense and it's interesting. But if it's a one-time thing where they scan it and create something, which will be a quick wallet creation, but if they don't continue to engage with that, I think why wouldn't he just drive them to his Instagram page or his threads app where they can engage with him more directly is the question that like we're trying to answer and ask. But love that Harry Styles is dabbling in this world. He's actually one of the talents that I haven't really seen do a lot of announcements about Web3 yet. So I like that he's doing this in a way that is very fan aligned and Ultimately, if he continues investing his time and effort and does that across all of his concerts and takes that number from, you know, five out of 80 to 10 out of 80 to 20 out of 80 and starts to make this a meaningful part of his, you know, fan engagement strategy, like it's a massive opportunity. Plus, I love Harry Styles. Yeah. Who doesn't? Absolutely. We will keep that in mind and keep watching what he does. All right, Avery, have a beautiful time at your wedding. Enjoy it and give my best to the couple, whoever they are. Can't wait to hear the episode, Sam. I love bright moments and can't wait to hear all the brilliance that Seth uh, shares with us. And with that, we will go to the break and we will see you all next week. Take care, Gen Z. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash genc. All right, so fun fact, Seth and I have at this point known each other about 30 50, years. 50 years? No. <laughs> Feels like 50 years. I worked for Seth in my early 20s or mid-20s. I was in my mid-20s too. Yeah, so yes. That's good. Point. Don't put me on any age pedestal. You're probably younger than I am. But uh, yeah, Seth had started one of the early dot-com advertising agencies in the digital space called Site Specific, where I was a producer and got to know Seth. And we've been sort of working on and off since then ever since on some fun projects that maybe we'll touch on. But Seth, we're going to like get into some of your background, which is so deep through the conversation. So I thought actually it would be nice to kick this off with really what first interested you in the blockchain and specifically NFTs as an interest point. So 2013, 2014, you know, early Bitcoin, I wish that was me, but it wasn't really. But also early, you know, Ethereum. And I think the beginning of this idea of smart contracts and a public ledger. And I think I was focused more on online music at the time. So I was um, working on Turntable FM with Billy Chasen, which for a little bit kind of took the world by storm before... It's a longer story and rabbit hole about licensing and internationalization of online music. I remember us bringing that to South by Southwest, I think 2012 or something. I think 2011. 2011, yeah. And the year before that was Sticky Bits. 
yes. with Billy, which was um, also a precursor to a lot of like augmented reality stuff. So, you know, blockchain was kind of, you know, foreground or background. And I remember thinking about it. I didn't really build anything on top of it. You know, it was always sort of like, okay, here's the underlying technology. There's going to be all these amazing consumer facing applications in the future. I remember I had an idea for, I forget what it was called, but just this idea of being able to like, you know, have like an IOU mechanism of like, okay, like I pay you, you pay me, you owe me, I owe you. And it's all public and it's all there. And that's kind of, I think the extent to how I was thinking about it early on. A few years later, I think it was 2000, maybe 16, 2017, I started a, for lack of a better word, a blockchain community center in San Francisco called Node. And, um, you know, this was a time when there was a lot of, you want to call them coins, but they were called altcoins or whatever you call them and people launching ICOs. Core ICO time, yeah. And projects and a lot of traveling and a lot of the nomadic lifestyle. And I thought, and this is around the time that co-working was a thing. I had started a really early co-working space in San Francisco called Pier 38 in 2009, 2010, where among other companies, Instagram started. That was their first office. And Naval was working out of there. And there's a lot of great companies that were kind of being birthed there right next to the ballpark in San Francisco. So I always love this idea of, we take it for granted now, but creating spaces for people to work. And um, the idea with Node was more of a, a lounge, less of a workspace where people would have a fixed desk, but more of a space where when you're going between crypto conferences in Seoul and Dubai and Tel Aviv and Austin, Texas, that you would kind of check in there and you could kind of connect with people. And the ICO bubble burst and a lot of that stopped. So I think there was like an undercurrent of blockchain activity and blockchain culture that I was engage with and thinking about and obviously saw crypto kitties saw crypto punks but didn't pay enough attention at the time unfortunately and at the same time i was also always a in my own time an artist and i was painting and i had an art studio and i started a little gallery for myself called water studios in fisherman's wharf and so if i think back to 2018 you know on the one hand i had a blockchain community center that i was working on and i also had an art studio and this was really before you know JPEG summer and before sort of round two of NFTs picked up at the end of 2020 with Super Rare and Foundation. I mean, I think you were one of the first people who told me about NFTs in a conversation at some point. And I remember you, one, telling me about what you're building with Bright Moments, but also I think you had bought punks. And I think you had, at that point, you're really interested in a lot of the generative work. I know you were starting to get close to the Artblocks team. I mean, was it more the art side or the business side that was turned on by that intersection and when you started to get interested in it? You can't talk about NFTs now without talking about the pandemic, or at least I can't, because I think that period of introspection, when we were literally stuck at home alone, all we had was the internet, you know, and maybe a couple of loved or unloved others who we were in quarantine with. But I think that gave rise to a lot of the momentum that came out in 2021. And so if you think about the rise of meme stocks, right, you know, GameStop and all the collectibles that were happening and all that activity through 2020, I mean, for me, I was just sort of like dithering around with, you know, NBA Top Shot. I'm a sports fan and I was buying Top Shot moments, they were called. And 
I remember distinctly, I mean, in retrospect, it was very forward looking. I bought a Nikola Jokic card for like four hundred dollars or you know, a moment, digital moment. And within a couple weeks, I think he got voted to the all-star team. And I sold that moment for like twelve hundred dollars. And it was real money. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And they weren't NF, you know, they were quasi NFTs. They were on Flow Blockchain with Dapper, which of course is the same team that brought you, you know, crypto kitties. So there was sort of a a lineage of all this happening. And um, at the same time, I was working on my umpteenth startup called Spartacus, which is a privacy service. And the idea was to get you to pay $9.99 a month, and we would delete as much data about you on the internet as possible. We'd um, tell the data brokers to you know ignore you. We'd help you understand your privacy score. It was hard to get people to pay for that. And the kind of the final insult to injury is I'd raise some money and I was using the money to advertise on Facebook to get people to care about their privacy. And it just felt like just the death of an entrepreneur. It was just like, here I am. I was like, just turned 50. My partner and I, Christy, we moved from the Bay Area. Both of our kids were in college. And so we were empty nesters and we moved to Venice Beach and I was just slugging away at Spartacus and I was just done. You know, I was really, I felt old. I felt just over the hill as an entrepreneur. I mean, it's a young person's game. And, you know, who was I doing another startup at 50? I mean, when we met, I was, you know, 25 in 1995, 1996. And it was a different era. You know, it was Web 1 and then there's Web 2. And here's this kind of Web 3 thing happening. And so I was done doing startups. I was thinking about teaching because I guess that's what you do when you're when you just when you're done in the startup game. Just thinking about teaching or maybe going to a big tech company and being that kind of like grizzled entrepreneur that people turn to about launching in-house ventures. But it was a really depressing time. And the one thing that I was I could control was I got a brand new Sony mirrorless camera and I would go to the Venice Beach breakaway and take pictures of the sunset every night. And it was beautiful. And I didn't realize at the time, but December and January are the two months in Venice Beach when the sun sets perfectly to the west. And I was taking these pictures of you know, the waves you know, crashing up and capturing the sunset behind them. And I was taking lots of pictures every night. And just f***ing around, I started to play with Runway ML and, and some of these early GAN tools. And I was making these synthetic, I guess you call them now post-photography, but synthetic videos that were trained off of my photos. And it just helped me psychologically and emotionally to have this art practice. There was no real intention of any startup around it. But I did like this idea of, okay, you know, people liked seeing them on Instagram, so I'm gonna try to sell them. And so I went through the process of starting a Shopify storefront and connecting it to Instagram and getting the drop shipping going. So if you could order a photo, it would get drop shipped from London and you know the $75 that you paid for the photo, I'd end up with you know $13. So it wasn't going to be a big moneymaker. So I was doing that. And I remember you know, a friend, Fred Wilson, who's a venture capitalist, who some you know we've known over the years and was a mentor of mine. I worked for him at Flatiron Partners after I sold Site Specific as an entrepreneur in residence. And Fred um, maintains a house in Venice, and he said, these are great. You know, you should turn them into NFTs. And this was January of 2021. And I was like, ah, that's interesting. And I remember 
a friend of a friend was the CEO of a foundation and foundation at the time was gated and you had to be approved as a creator. And I reached out and I got approved as a creator and I put up one of these little videos that were under 50 megabytes. And I think it was like a Tuesday night and I went to bed. I think I priced it at one ETH, which is a lot, or maybe it was an auction. I don't quite remember, but it sold. You know, the next morning I woke up and I had ETH in my wallet. And here I'd been spending weeks and weeks trying to get my Shopify site to work with drop shipping. Right. You're $13. Right. And it was like, you know, big light bulb went off. And um, that, I think, was the aha moment for me and just got me really excited about this file format that really seemed to unlock a lot of creativity. I think there's a saying in technology, you know, when something happens once, it might be a flash in the pan. When something happens twice, it's probably going to happen three, four, five times, right? And keep going. And so I think with that pattern recognition with NFTs, you know, that first wave was over, you know, the crypto kitties and crypto punks from, you know, 2017. And here we were, that same file format was taking on another life. And so it just convinced me to really go all in emotionally. And I didn't think of it as, oh, I'm going to do a startup. It was more like, this is exciting. I was coming at it from an artistic angle. And my first thought was like, let's start an NFT gallery. Like, why not? You know, people are so hungry to, you know, we were all stuck in pandemic. Everyone was, you know, just, it was a scary time. What was cool about Venice Beach, this was outside, right? And so part of the reason we moved to Venice Beach and not to New York City is New York City was closed down. And a lot of these cities were shut down. And Venice had the boardwalk and it had the ocean, had the paddle tennis courts and surfing. And that's why we ended up going there. And so it was more open than most places. And just you know, every day I was going to the same coffee shop on Windward Ave under the Venice sign called Minotti's and meeting people. And so this idea started to form of creating a physical gallery to show NFTs on a couple of screens. I understand that this moment was happening in your head, right? I went backwards and I was sort of researching. I remember what you were doing with Root back in the day, which in some respects was letting people sell or monetize their own data. And then I was thinking about what you did with Food Fight that you were involved with, which was kind of a, a virtual currency play. And it just started to connect to me that a lot of these areas that you've been playing with for probably the last decade, decade and a half, are areas that people would consider Web3 right now. So my question is really about the fact that it feels like you've been doing the work, whether you knew it or not, to understand that digital assets and digital interactions were going to be more meaningful in the future. So when people now are coming into the Web3 space and they're looking to people like yourself who have been doing this for a long time, you know, what's your, I guess, answer to them about why all of that stuff is actually meaningful? I think in a word is ownership, right? So I think what you point out is it's really thoughtful, which is there have been Web3 moments or Web3 attitudes or Web3 positions from the beginning of Web1. But it wasn't until the emergence of the blockchain and NFTs and DAOs and some of these tools that we've had legitimate ways of owning our data. And if you can own your data, you can own the art that's built on the data. And if you're owning all that, then you can vote and you can govern and you own the currency. Right? There's a lot that gets built on top of this structure of ownership that creates these psychologies of ownership that create, you know, kind of meaning that we're living through. And, you know, go back to like, was it Mob Shop? 
right? Remember like late 90s? Like there were these moments of like, oh, we're going to do stuff together. And at the beginning of Web 2 with Flickr and with Delicious, there was definitely this ethos, early social media, that it was not only going to be user generated, but it was going to be user controlled and user owned. And it turned out that it was indeed user generated, but it wasn't user owned, right? That the value flowed to the platforms and whether it was Instagram or YouTube or Google, that you know we were all digital serfs working for you know the man. And I think finally, with the introduction of NFTs, that broke a little bit. And we're not maybe fully there, but you know, for me, 2005 or 2006, I remember working on something called Attention Trust. And the idea was like, because I knew as a, and we knew as online marketers, that this data that you generate is super valuable because we're selling it to advertisers and we're selling it to brands. And why couldn't the individual get some benefit financially, for example? And so when Firefox started before Chrome became the sort of the default experience or Safari became as big as it is, I remember building a extension called the Attention Trust Recorder. And what it did was capture your clickstream and allow you to do things with it. And so if I own my clickstream and you own your clickstream, like why can't we all own our clickstreams and do things with it that we have the right to? And maybe I don't want my search history available to third-party advertisers. I want to keep it blind and I want to gate when people have access to it and meter it like some kind of public utility. And the reality that I kept learning you know, over the years is people, they say they care about their privacy and they say they care about all this, but they don't. They're lazy and we want convenience. And when you do the math of you know, what your particular clickstream is worth, it's not worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, It's worth dollars. Now, I even had ideas along the way. I still want to get back to it. I wanted to create like a data pension where if you agreed to lock up your data, like almost like sign your own personal data to a 20-year contract where you agree to continue to provide your data for a certain period of time that we could guarantee you an annuity after 20 years, like a pension, right? And you should be able to get $10,000 a year after 20 years, but making that work in reality was really hard. It's funny because I also remember when you and I were at Site Specific, we also were working with Clay Shirky at the time, who really, I think, was building the formation of what became Here Comes Everybody, his book, around the same thesis that all of us in that space, we all knew that there was a thing happening where people were coming on in droves. I think it was outside specific where we had, you know, conversations about how, you know, we would add a drop down to a banner ad and it would get an 8% click through because it was a new technology. And then what would you do if you knew you could sort of give that power of what me as a consumer, by interacting, I'm giving away something. But if I'm AT&T and I'm monetizing, that's one thing. But what happens when you collectively pull that power together? It's such a big concept that we just were never able to realize back then. And people forget. I mean, at the time, online advertising was really creative and building websites and building banners and getting the kind of engagement. And somehow it turned into surveillance capitalism. (laughs) Yes. Right? And somehow it turned into... I mean, I remember doing early banners, even before site-specific, for Hotwired, because I was working at Condé Nast online and like making banners that had like 30% click-through because no one had seen them before. And now if you get you know, a lift of 0.001, you know, it can change the economics of a platform. 
I'm going to rewind a little bit, but I want to connect the dots. So we have this advertising awareness. You know, you've built an advertising agency, you've sold an advertising agency. You come in as entrepreneur in residence to Flatiron Partners with Fred Wilson, which I want to talk about as well. But, you know, when I was looking back, I also saw you were awarded a fellowship. You moved to Germany. You were a multimedia artist. And it sounded like you had created a fair amount of things that were really focused on the intersection of code and art from your art practice. And sort of as coming out of college, that was an area of interest. So I'm just interested in the fact that when you look at that, again, combined with now all these other signals that you were getting, and obviously we're leading up to bright moments, but also to art blocks and what you guys have all collectively done, you know, it feels to some degree that the intersection of algorithmic code that can create art combined with now the medium of being able to mint something in real time was a big unlock for me. Because we all knew a lot of really amazing creative code artists, but they weren't getting the same attention back then. But again, you were dabbling in those spaces so young. I guess I kind of wonder, was all of this stuff, you were just kind of almost waiting for the medium to arrive that could utilize it in the fashion you had envisioned? I mean, that's a super positive bent to it. I appreciate that. Of course. (laughs) But the reality is, you know, I got out of college and I was really interested in avant-garde theater and performance art. And I was uh, the archivist for Robert Wilson, who had done Einstein on the Beach with Philip Glass. And that was my passion. But it just felt like a total economic dead end. I went to Germany. I worked with Bill Forsyth, the Frankfurt Ballet, and and made a CD-ROM because the web hadn't really started yet. But it was about like exploring his generative choreography digitally. And I think it's almost 30 years old now, and it's still being used. It's called Improvisation Technologies. But I really felt that, yeah, just like a dead end economically and career-wise. And so... CD-ROMs were not the art medium you expected. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And when the web happened, you know, that's when we met around site-specific. Like, that's where all the action was, and that's where the culture was moving. And it wasn't about art with a capital A. It was about art with a lowercase a and like designing websites and web art and copywriting and just like creating content for this new medium. And it was too early to think of it as art. You know, it's not a accident that it was called site specific and site specific is, you know, a name from, you know, the seventies, you know, conceptual art and land art and making art that is very specific to the surroundings. And so it was a play on words to call a web agency site-specific, like websites were somehow specific. But I kind of, you know, left all the art stuff aside. And I think what's great now, 25, 30 years later, is that we have the emergence of code-based art as a legitimate thing. And, you know, back to the pandemic, like coming out of the pandemic, everything got so disembodied. And these artworks were so transactional. When you think about, you know, fundamentally what happens when you mint an NFT it's a transaction on the blockchain and it could happen anywhere at any time. There is no physical binding to the earth, right? It's just happening ethereally, you know, on Ethereum. And so I think our contribution at Bright Moments and I think my contribution to Bright Moments was to say, wait a minute, like, let's make this more performative. Like, what if it wasn't just, I'm going to mint, 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 and I'm going to flip, 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 but actually minting something had some meaning behind it and had some emotional context and a physical context and it made it more memorable. And that's really what we stumbled into, you know, at Bright Moments and how we got lucky when the peanut butter and the chocolate of, you know, art blocks and the pandemic and crypto Venetians and the summer of 2021, all of that came together to sort of make something 
percolate. And we're like, oh, and this is probably when we connected. It was like, oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. This is different. And there's a through line here. And it wasn't clear at the time. And it makes more sense now when you think about you know, live minting or IRL experiences. It's a thing. It's not a big thing. But I think it's a way of taking a file format that's fundamentally transactional and putting meat and ligaments and you know, all sorts of flesh around it so that it has feeling attached to it. And it's something you remember more than just something that's commodified. There's something that I've been thinking about for the last week in prepping for this, but the idea that ownership is experiential, I think is a really important one, right? I was talking to someone earlier today about the difference between streaming music and owning vinyl. And even how, when we went from vinyl to CD, we lost something because we didn't have that physical presence. You couldn't take the record out. You couldn't read the liner notes really. And then we went to streaming, it became easier, but it became again less experiential by nature. And the fact that the vinyl format continues to keep growing and more and more people are collecting, right? And they like to be able to have something. They can rent this any song they want, but you know they have the album of their favorite artist. In the same way that if you own your apartment, you will make more modifications to it. If you own a car, you will keep it cleaner. And I do think that the experience of ownership is something that was missing a little bit in the beginning days of the NFT side. And I think it was me coming to a Bright Moments event in, I think it was in New York, where you got to see, you know, everyone got to see your crypto citizen appear at the exact same time and they were all generated. And whether it was me or it was Andy Milanakis or Gary Vee or a politician or, you know, I mean, you had brought in a guy who taught chess at Washington Square Park and had him mint one as well, which I remember. There was a communal element there that I think was early to the importance of experience for digital communities. So I would love, you know, one, and as short as you can, but as concise as you can, tell our audience what Bright Moments is, and two, why the output, the form of it is so experiential in nature. I mean, life is experiential, right? And whether we're out in the woods or whether we're doom scrolling on Twitter, we're still breathing and we're touching something and we're not, you know, brains in a vat connected to the matrix quite yet, right? And so... It's not like an invention, but it's also, it's not Luddite. It's not like, you know, turn off your phones and breathe deeply, right? So how can we accentuate, you know, the physical world and provide context to the live minting? And so in terms of, you know, what is Bright Moments? Well, we're an art gallery on one level, and we are working with artists to mint amazing artworks, you know, on the blockchain. It's been mostly Ethereum on art blocks, but also some FX hash Tez, although Tez is now, I mean, FX hash will be moving to Ethereum as well. You know, we've done some one of ones. We've done some AI art too, but I think our bread and butter is on-chain generative art. And what's unique about on-chain generative art, particularly when it's long format, long format means it's not just one NFT, but you're actually, the artist is creating an algorithm that can support a hundred or a thousand or in the case of squiggles, you know, 10,000 outputs. And definitionally, as per the contract, each one is different. So each one that gets minted is recognizable as being unique. And so if you're about to mint whatever algorithm, you're going to know that this one that's coming out of the algorithm is yours. And there's no other one that's exactly like that. And the uniqueness is what makes it ownable. And when you can own it, you can celebrate it as yours. 
And that's powerful. It's just fundamentally powerful to know that this thing, whether I got it for free or whether I paid 100 ETH for it, that this thing coming out of the algorithm is mine and no one has seen it before this moment, including the artist. A lot of artists, you know, painters will spend, you know, months, if not years working on a piece. They've lived with it. And by the time you as a collector buys it, it's special because it's being transferred from their property to yours. But it's not like you're the first one in the world seeing it. In the case with generative art on chain, what we're talking about is in take uh, Incomplete Control, which is a show we did with Tyler Hobbs in New York in December of 2021. You know, this is his first drop after Fidenza, which had a thousand outputs, and this was going to be a hundred. And so there's a lot of excitement and a lot of suspense, and people were spending a lot of ETH to collect one of these pieces, and they didn't know exactly how it was going to look, and neither did Tyler. He designed the algorithm. He knew what the output space looked like, but he didn't know exactly which one you were going to generate when you hit mint. And I think those are very special experiences where the collecting impulse, the ownership impulse, the aesthetic impulse, the physical experience is all coming together. And economically, the more meaning you have in the experience, the more you're going to hold on to it. You're going to be less likely to just flip it the way you would if something that you had received more transactionally. And just for context, because I went to one of the nights of minting of incomplete control, and just to frame it, you're at a beautiful, large, lofty gallery space in Soho with people who I remember, I think it was like a 30 ETH price, which at the time was $90,000 to buy a piece of art. And with a bunch of people who were not your traditional art collectors. They don't look like anyone going into the Martin Lawrence Gallery in Soho, which I also think is, you know, had a certain different type of badge value, right? And I think that's one of the things that Bright Moments has always done really well, which is be very native to the environment you're in and design for the environment, but also to be willing to keep pushing people to think of art differently, to think of experiences differently. The experience in Mexico City that I saw you at for Bright Moments last October. I mean, you guys, you know, you took over, can't even imagine the number of square feet in that building, plus a restaurant, plus program music every single night. And, you know, I was with a lot of people that was their first time there, whether it's Dave Krugman or Bobby Hundreds or any of these folks. And like, it changed their opinion of what these experiences should be. And I think we hear that time and time again. I mean, you just finished Tokyo, which was your seventh city? It was our seventh city. We're getting ready for Buenos Aires, which will be our eighth city in November. Right. Buenos Aires is coming. So part of what you're also doing is bringing people into different cultures. And you can't even have a go at getting the art unless you have a crypto citizen. So there's also like some mechanics there that are really interesting, which is you buy into the, the citizenship, which then gives you access to then buy into the art experience. And the more you collect, then the more you start saying, oh, well, I want to then go to spend money on going to the event. And it is something that I think feels luxury, but it also feels democratic. I mean, there's something really special about it that people talk about Bright Moments as for. So when you first thought of this movement, I mean, was there a vision of we're going to do these 10 cities, we're going to build into them and create from them and then figure it out next? Or like, I guess, tell us about the roadmap of what you want Bright Moments to be. So, I mean, I think, you know, you got to be smart to get lucky, but we got lucky and the timing was right in the summer of 2021 when, you know, back to, okay, we wanted to start a gallery. We wanted to bring people in to experience NFTs. And at the time, this was really even before we got involved with generative art or art blocks. NFTs were, you know, 
okay, we'll put a Beeple every day on one screen and we'll put a LeBron James top shot moment on the other. And hopefully people from the boardwalk in Venice Beach would just walk in and they could scan a QR code and they could learn about it and maybe someone will buy one. And that was kind of the extent of it. And then, you know, as a somewhat experienced, you know, marketing slash entrepreneur, I was like, okay, we need a hook. We need some way to get people off the street. Let's give away free NFTs. And if you come into the gallery, we will mint you an NFT, which means we'll open up a wallet. You'll have to put some ETH on it to pay for gas, which was a big challenge. And we'll do it from three to five in the afternoon because that's dead usually for galleries. And that's kind of how it started. And it just so happened that the artist that we were working with first is Jeff Davis, who's the chief creative officer and one of the co-founders of Artblocks. And I had this idea of um, doing our version of CryptoPunks and call them Crypto Venetians. And he said, oh, you could generate these on Artblocks. You can use Artblocks to generate pixel characters and they could be generative. And we could do it in a way where the only people that can generate them are those that come to the gallery physically, because you had to have a certain token that came from our DAO, which is an ERC-20 token called BRT. It wasn't on Uniswap. You couldn't buy it. So you had to come physically. And that's really how it started. And because of the friction, it took a long time to have you come into the gallery. And we had a sandwich sign outside that said, you know, free NFTs, you know, get them while they're hot. And you'd come in, it would probably take 15 minutes to set you up and get your MetaMask wallet and have you write your seed phrases, you know, don't show it to us and put it away, don't take a picture of it and educate you. And then you'd walk out and it kind of turned into a day journal, day party where we had, you know, Charlie, my son was DJing and Jacob, my other son was in the other room hyping you up and Phil was there and Christy was there and Dole was there. And like, you know, we had a little crew there from Venice Beach making this all happen. And it took time, right? It wasn't like we're dropping 10,000, they're gone. It was like, this is going to take months to just get through the crypto Venetians. And it was a magic summer. There was sort of fake, funny internet money flowing around. And these things that we were giving away for free, suddenly Bob Iger came through and minted one. And Bob was the chairman of Disney. And Paul Pierce came through. And suddenly, these things that you're getting for free, people were turning around and selling them for three, four, five ETH. So it was like we were a car dealership giving away free cars. And so out of that, this longer roadmap evolved, which is why don't we go around the world in 10,000 NFTs? And you know, starting with Venice Beach, let's mint a different city every couple months to get to 10,000. And it's going to take us three years. And so that's kind of what we've done. You know, We went from Venice Beach to New York, from New York to Berlin, from Berlin to London, from London to Mexico City, from Mexico City to Tokyo, and next stop is Buenos Aires. We started with our own DAO collection, which is the Galacticans, which is how we're at eight now. Buenos Aires will be the eighth. The ninth city we're voting on as a DAO, everybody that mints or collects one of these citizen NFTs is a full and equal member of the DAO, and you vote on what city comes next. So the choices for city number nine are Paris, Seoul, Cape Town, Athens, and Dubai. So we have 7,000 minted crypto citizens that will vote on city number nine. And city number 10 will be Venice, Italy, because we decided that the poetry of going from Venice to Venice is too good to leave to a vote. And so we institutionalized this slow mint, which thank God, because we've already gone through every imaginable ebb and flow in this market, bull and bear and bearer still, right? The other thing that's really cool is there's an opportunity to experience these different cultures. And 
the way we minted crypto Berliners in an 80,000 square foot techno warehouse in Berlin was very different than what we did in London, which was posh and bespoke and on Apple Marl. Like a haberdashery, basically. Yes. Right. And then from there, we went to Mexico, which is more of a spiritual festival in the middle of a courtyard. And then Tokyo was the center of the world. And Tokyo was on the top of a skyscraper with amazing screens and just amazing electronics everywhere. And so Buenos Aires will be different. Buenos Aires will be, as we're putting it, on-chain but offline. And how do we create analog experiences that are very much sophisticated and on-chain, but maybe don't have as many screens in your face as Tokyo does? And so that we go from the center of the world to the end of the world. And there'll be a very special mint after Buenos Aires in Patagonia with an amazing artist. And also special shout out to your brother Jonas, who does a lot of the design work on this stuff and is a true artist himself. Yeah, we have an amazing team. So just to start to wrap up here. So Venice, never a reason not to go to Italy, in my opinion. So love that that's going to be the final location. And one question is, what next? after that. And then my second is, along the way, you guys have been able to work with Samsung and Suntory, and now with Howard Hughes Corporation here in New York and Artblocks and Ledger. So you've you also collected these wonderful partners. So what do you think like a Samsung sees in a bright moments? Because I think there's some learnings around what you guys have created, which is, again, feels so special that it feels very akin to me of when brands want to create special experiences that you've got amazing people coming. You've thought of all the senses in your design. Like what should brands take away? Why are they wanting to work with you? And what can they learn from what Bright Moments does really well? An example of Suntory, right? Suntory, you know, has a constituency of people that are buying and collecting, you know, amazing whiskeys, you know, Yamazaki, Hibiki, which can go for hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, an auction. And so there's a shared kind of, I think, psychology of ownership oftentimes with luxury, right? Which is, I think, where Ledger is kind of leaning into as well, is this market has to be more than a bunch of DGens on Discord. I mean, it's important, you know, it starts there, right? And that's, you know, clearly a heartbeat. And, you know, for every super elegant, bespoke, aesthetic, transformative experience, there's always going to be some form of token farming on Blur or whatever the platform is to make it work as a highly functional and liquid marketplace. And so I think what we're doing, I think with brands, is stretching those understandings and really kind of helping them understand that it is a form of luxury, you know, it is a form of lifestyle, and that the collectors, for example, of some of these most important generative art collections are the same people that are collecting traditional art, you know, at Sotheby's or at Hauser and Worth. Right. Okay. So as we think of Venice, Italy being the, the final stop in this part of the journey, what are you guys thinking is next for Bright Moments? So Venice will be the kind of grand retrospective and will land you know, during the Biennale next year, 420, 2024, which is a palindrome. And the goal there is to have a retrospective of all the hundred or so drops that we've done over the last couple of years to get there. Beyond that, I think we have a really interesting network of sub-DAOs around the world where we have, you know, not only did we have a major activation in Tokyo, but we have a community there that lives on. You know, we have a sub-DAO in Mexico, we have a sub-DAO in London that continue to have meetups, that have exhibits, uh, that do educational workshops, and that, you know, in some ways are like franchises of the brand. And so that there is a Bright Moments London, and there's a Bright Moments Mexico, and there's a Bright Moments Tokyo that live on. We have this idea of doing an annual event, 
you know, kind of a bigger scale. Right now, we're doing every couple of months, we're opening up a new city. Once we get to Venice, I think we want to shift to a different kind of cadence. And we won't do new cities as much as activate the existing ones because we'll have this global footprint. We also have some amazing tools and software that we've built along the way that allows us to do what we do, which is to mint live experiences, to display NFTs on screens, to move them around, to create playlists. And more and more, we're getting inbound interest from museums and galleries and other institutions that want to be able to use the software. And so we imagine continuing to pushing that out. So there's a service layer potentially. Exactly. Is your competition in the larger sort of arena, you know, Gagosian, or is it Coachella? Maybe. <laughs> like, I think it's just it's seeing this idea through, right? And completing this roadmap and being able to mint all 10,000 citizens and work with all these artists will just put us in a really good position to continue to build on-chain culture and to explore all the different ways you can mint and experience crypto art in the broadest sense. You know, NFTs enable us to build this community around the world. Being structured as a DAO with citizens as owners and members allowed us to move really fast in a very decentralized way. You know, I think long term, you know, we've been durable so far. You know, we didn't raise capital the traditional way. And I think that served us really well. It's forced us to kind of continue to focus on product market fit now, right? It's not like we've got a chunk of fiat currency and we're building some toolkit that may or may not, you know, work in the future. We've had to stay very, very close to the ground and, you know, we eat what we kill. What I love about how you design your events is, you know, it's not a cheap ticket and that's both to come or to get a citizen or to mint it really depends on where you are in the socioeconomic spectrum. But no one ever doubts that you guys haven't sort of put it into the event, right? Like the stuff you do is expensive. It's hard to do. It takes a giant team. Again, you have a fantastic team at that. And you also curate the experience from back to front in ways that I think is not about extracting value from other people. It's about how do you take what they're giving, give them something that is rewarding. Hopefully you make your margin on it. Like, you know, you're still a business, but I do think it sort of is using more legacy thinking of business building than what we're seeing in common NFT spaces today to build something that feels special. And you also, more than almost anyone, know the power of positive word of mouth and the ability to create something that people then want to tell people, you got to go see this, which I think is kind of the takeaway that most people who go to a Bright Moments event have. Also, I should mention, you know, each city, we mint a thousand crypto citizens and a third of them we sell, right, to fund the activation. So in the case of, you know, Tokyo, we sold 333 mint passes to mint crypto Tokyoites. And that money allowed us in part to put on the production. We also airdrop a third of them to existing holders. And then we give a third of them away for free to local community. And we've done that from the beginning because back in the Venetians, we gave them all away. In New York, I think we gave 800 away. We sold 200. Starting in Berlin, you know, we went to this third, third, a third. And so even with Buenos Aires and beyond, it's trying to create a community that's not homogenous, right? If it was just an online drop at a certain time, you might get a really high floor price or whatever, but you get a very brittle community that just looks and feels the same. And so I think by opening up these different gauges to different participation, some people are going to pay retail and they want to buy a citizen and they want to get the benefits that go with that. Other people might get the benefit of getting one for free because they have a collection of citizens and still others, it may be their first NFT, right? And they're the ones that become really powerful over time because they go down the rabbit hole, either as artists or collectors. And to your point earlier about ownership, 
by buying into it or being gifted into it and then being at the experience where you get to say, I helped make this, right? And I think that feels fundamentally different than just buying a ticket to the movie that you know someone else made and they're just trying to make margin. All right, Seth, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a good conversation. I always love talking to you and hearing your thoughts on these things. I think you are a, a wonderful sort of guide for us in the space to how to think about this stuff thoughtfully. And as someone who has been on the forefront, both in success and in failure of innovation over the last 20, 30 years, I think people often listen to what you say as, is this something I should be interested in? You know, because you can help explain it to them through the lens of, I've also done this when it doesn't work. Yeah, plenty of those. Yeah, I really appreciate you being able to spend some time with us. Thank you, Sam. Seth, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. So while I missed having Avery here for that discussion, there is something that's both intimate and special for me to be able to spend so much time with Seth. As we said in the beginning of the interview, Seth and I worked together when we were both really starting our careers. And he was someone who has always pushed into new spaces, new innovations, been very fearless as an entrepreneur in helping to kind of explore where technologies can go. The fact we didn't really get to it as much as I'd wanted to, but he was the entrepreneur in residence at Flatiron Partners with Fred Wilson. So was on the front line also of deploying capital as much as being the entrepreneur in residence and building things within a VC firm. So I just think he's someone who, when I learned he was doing stuff on chain and in bright moments, we just reconnected and started talking more and more because I always have appreciated his perspective on these things. And for anyone who has not been to a Bright Moments event, I highly recommend you get to one and you don't have to go to Buenos Aires or whatever their ninth city will be or Venice, although I am for sure hoping to be in Venice. So if you are coming, hit me up. But they do have locations still in Venice. There is one at the Howard Hughes Corporation here in New York, which they do, I think, weekly events on. And they're just beautiful, they're special, they're communal. And I think they really show the best of what the NFT ecosystem can be, especially around art and the idea of creators and simultaneously the idea that code-generated digital art is a true art form that we should be paying attention to and why. So with that, I will wrap up. Please ensure to like, subscribe, do all the things you can do on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to Avery or myself with any suggestions. We always love hearing from you. And with that, we will see you next week. Mm -hmm.